All right. Well, I am um, now joined uh, by uh, Sean Richmond. Uh, Sean, for anyone unfamiliar with uh, with you and uh, uh, you and what you do, who are you and what do you do? I'm uh, I'm uh, I, I do higher I do labor stuff in higher ed. I was a union organizing director for a great number of years, mostly at AFT. Charter school organizing. Um, I um, uh, published my first book, "Tell the Bosses We're Coming," uh, a couple of years ago. I'm working on another book uh, that, uh, that's a history of the uh, hotel workers' unions in New York City in the first half of the 20th century. Nice, uh, yeah. And people who are curious about that first book can uh, check out. I think it was like last summer, sometime. You were on the main show on YouTube talking about, uh, talking about that. It's a very good book. People should check it out. So in this, uh, this new article, uh, you just wrote for Jacobin, it's called independent unions can help break through, uh, the economic crisis and, uh, and labor's, uh, paralysis. And it's, um, it's a review of, uh, a book, uh, you know, posthumous uh, book, uh, obviously, because it was just published by uh, Philip Foner, which we could talk about in a second. But uh, just in terms of the sort of why it might be of interest uh, to to read a review of this particular book at this particular moment, you know, you, you kind of start off the article. Here's the first paragraph. You say, in a period of extreme social and economic crisis, when the major labor unions have reduced their organizing programs to a fraction of what they once were and courts stand athwart any effort to protect workers' interests, scrapping new independent unions raise hope against hope that maybe, just maybe, workers can fight back and win. I'm writing, of course, about the early 1930s. Um, the, uh, you know, the joke there being that that sounds a whole lot like the, uh, the early... Uh, the early 2020s, you know, which because like one of the striking things about the recent uh, some of these recent labor victories about like, um, you know, the Amazon one in Staten Island and uh, this massive number of um, of of Starbucks uh, that were uh, that have been uh, have been organized is that these are um, these are efforts by by new unions. And, you know, that might make, you know. That might that might alone make people curious about the sort of past history of this. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it is it, it is it is it's a striking sort of um, parallel, um, and, and um, the, the independent unions in that really started in 1929 are um, controversial um, uh, among historians because it was uh, it was frankly a very sectarian effort by the Communist Party of the United States of America to um, just to break free of the AFL. They had spent the 1920s, um, the phrase was boring from within, um, but trying to organize within the established unions of the American Federation of Labor to um, to take control of certain locals, um, to press for new organizing campaigns. And um, and they just found themselves getting um, expelled and banished. Um, and so um, for for bizarre geopolitical reasons that only Joseph Stalin really understands, there was this like hard split in 1929 where they were just ordered to go back to doing what, what frankly, many of these people were doing anyway. This is like the left of the left. 
um, these are former wobblies for the most part, um, who had been organizing independent unions. It was the Communist Party that said, no, stop forming independent, like these independent unions. All you're doing is playing, it was Lenin actually who said this, all you're doing is playing into um, Sam Gomper's hands. He loves the fact that you go and leave, then he just gets to run the place. Go contest yeah, for this, power within those unions. Uh, yeah, this is the, uh, anybody who's, uh, who's ever watched the uh, Warren Beatty movie Reds will remember this is a crucial plot point. Yeah, 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 right. The, 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 the fine distinction of which half of the left of the left gets to be Moscow's choice for the Communist Party in America is the, the best line that Diane Keaton speaks in the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, a great yeah, movie. Yeah, it's, it's well worth it's well worth watching. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, but like, but poor, this is poor, also poor like, Reed. yeah, but poor Zach Reed dies, you know, like 1922 or so other people were just stuck following that strategy and being massively frustrated by it. So that when in 1929, the decision came down, just form new unions. They did, but it was also, it was, it was, it was sort of Stalin breaking with the, the these early sort of united front efforts sort of an anti-fascist united front with social democrats it was break break with the unions and start blaming liberals and social democrats and the official unions for all of the ills in society of which there were many again major parallel to our times uh the the, the political economy of 1929 1930 not very dissimilar from us now um right. And so, uh, but but many activists were happy to do this actually because they were just spinning their wheels and, and they were just getting they were getting banned, you know. It was like uh, the, the whole idea of boring from win, within is um, if you form an independent union, they're going to call you a dual unionist, which is like one of the worst sins you can commit within within labor unionism. But then they're going to accuse you of that anyway and ban you anyway. So why waste all this time? Um, and, and so it's, it's an interesting effort. And, um, one of the things that, um, you know, uh, Philip Foner died in 1994. Um, so he missed a lot of, of the scholarship that has actually right. really redeemed the trade union unity league. This is the communist effort, um, where um, there are these new scholars who are not sort of stuck in a cold war, um, framework where, you know, um, you basically you can't publish a thing without like saying which side you would have been on in 1947. Right. <laughs> um, and, and they're like, no, something happened here. Like this was genuinely um, an expression of left-wing worker activists, frustrations. This, although the, the membership numbers were pathetic, um, they probably never got above 50,000 members, but they took maybe a quarter million mem workers out on strike. And like that's that's impressive because there were no other strikes happening for the most part. Um, so at a time where workers really needed to go on strike, it was the beginning of the Great Depression. Um, then the AFL was not doing that. Um, these organizers were sort of they were they were developing these muscles that the labor movement was going to need for the the the, the strike wave of 1934 and the sit down strikes that followed. Um, and, um, and, and so that's, that's what's sort of interesting. And, and so the parallel here, of course, is that the, the, the mainstream unions of the AFL-CIO have mostly, not entirely, I don't, don't get me wrong here, um, there, are, there are unions that are very serious about organizing, and they stand out. Unite Here, SEIU, uh, CWA, uh, uh, just to name a few, uh, I'm not damning anybody that I'm not mentioning, 
they are they they have good organizing programs and they're focused on this. But a lot of unions, um, after spending from about 1997 on, maybe 20 percent of their of their budgets on new organizing. That is hiring organizers to talk to workers at completely non-union supermarkets, you know, malls, factories, what have you, to try to get them to, to organize, quietly abandoned that project about 10 years ago. Um, and so now when, like, people are clearly fed up, I mean, we're seeing, you know, during, during COVID, we saw all kinds of wildcat strikes among low-paid fast food workers, and we are seeing these organizing campaigns in retail, Amazon and Trader Joe's. Um, most unions are not doing that organizing, but this is happening for the most part independently. And the notable exception is actually um, it, it's actually the, the Starbucks union, which is not mm -hmm. independent. It is actually affiliated with um, uh, 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 this group called Workers United, which is an, uh, which it's an mm -hmm. SEIU affiliate. Um, oh, it, it, it's roots. It's roots go back to the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. Um, they, you know, they merged with Unite with, with here, actually, with the hotel workers mm -hmm. um, became Unite here. And then there was this messy divorce and they wound up this very rump organization, um, which and this is maybe why they're the one sort of a small, scrappy AFLC, well, they're not AFLCO because they're SEIU, but the one sort of established union yeah. that has sort of taken to heart the way you got to organize, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're doing this dance with the workers, you know, um, where they're letting, you know, they're, they're not letting the organizing committees call all the shots, right? It's sort of, it's, yeah. it, would, it would be irresponsible to let a, a, a bunch of non-dues payers decide how to spend millions of dollars of the union's budget. But they are letting the workers at Starbucks make major decisions about, you know, are, are we asking for a boycott, which they're not yet. They're very, that's very strategic. They're not yet calling for a boycott. They're actually calling people to shop at Starbucks and to, like, leave a, a pro-union name when, with your order. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, decisions about these one-day strikes that they're doing. Um, they're, they're leaving that in, in the workers' hands. Um, and, 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 and so the, the organizing is actually very successful because the workers feel a degree of autonomy. Um, cause you know, organizing is terrifying because mm -hmm. you know what the boss is going to do. And one of the great unknowns is you don't know what the union is going to do to back you up. Um, and so by, by making right. the organizing, uh, by, by making, by, by giving these organizing committees a little bit more autonomy, it gives the workers a tremendous amount more, more um, uh, uh, confidence in their own decision-making. And I, you know, this was one of my great, uh, bugaboos when I was an organizing director and, 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 you know, it's a, it's a thing that, that organizers really have to sweat through, you know, cause you're just, you, you feel like you've got people's lives, livelihoods in your hands and you do. And so you're very terrified of like making the wrong decision. Um, and so there's this tendency, particularly from like 1997 on in organizing, to try to control the, the organizing, try to try to try to organize, uh, manipulate. You try to manipulate your organizing committee into coming around to your decision, uh, and without presenting them with all the information that you have. And it's like, you know what? Workers are smart, you know, because th there's this room. There's this room where there are charts on the wall, and, and, uh -huh. and you know, it's it's like something out of out of you know out of It's Always Sunny, Charlie. Uh -huh. you know? 
that's real. That's that, that there's a room in every union office where it's like, this is how we're going to take them down. And it's like, Oh, but you're like terrified of letting the workers see it. But it's like, why? Like they're smart. We're smart. Why, if they were presented with the same information, do we think that they would come down with a radically different right. decision about how to proceed? You know, they wouldn't. Um, but it's, 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 um, it's, 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 it's something that's been ingrained into labor in the last, you know, this particular, since 1997, it's very hard to get out of. Um, and so I think one of the reasons that these campaigns are winning Starbucks, which is with a major union, but Amazon mm-hmm. and, and Trader Joe's that have decided to go independent is there, there's, there's a kind of freedom and a kind of Zen that comes with, right, well, we decided and we're going to, it was our decision and we'll, 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 we'll deal with the fallout come what may. It's scary, right. but it's actually like one of the essential components of organizing. Right. And, and so, so, so uh, to go back to, to the yeah. book, I mean, that, that's one of the things that the TUUL did um, uh, uh, really well. Um, and, and, and the veterans of the trade union unity league, um, the, the, you know, the ones that actually like became successful and wound up leading their own locals or international unions in the CIL or even in the AFL. Um, the book I'm working on is a group of uh, TUUL workers who wound up in the AFL. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they debriefed their stuff pretty quickly afterwards. It's a goldmine for, for scholars. Um, and, and, and so they were pretty clear, like, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a terrible mistake. We should never do that again. You know, <laughs> but like, uh-huh. it was a proving ground. Um, and and it, it's one of the things that made the CIO so successful is that there were these rank and file activists and there were these organizers who were like, that's a terrible idea. We did that in 1932. Here's why we shouldn't do it. And also experiences of this worked in 1930. We should do it again here, but with more money and, and, and more workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, worth noting, by the way, I think one of the uh, – uh, I remember there's this quote that was going around from uh, one of the uh, – the Amazon organizers at uh, Staten Island say that they had like a reading group uh, when they were uh, doing that campaign that included uh, William Z. Foster, who is a uh, yeah, for a bit, yeah, uh, communist party uh, communist party leader. So I, I, I don't I don't I don't specifically remember what Foster they were reading or if it had anything to. They, uh, they to... were reading they were reading about the nineteen nineteen steel strike. Um, one okay. of the things about Foster is, um, I mean, he's he's a personal hero of mine. He's like my. You know, I, I, you probably like like this too. I have like tragic heroes, like my favorite tragic heroes, where it's like, oh, you were so right in this year, and mm-hmm. what happened to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Foster is mostly remembered as being this very sectarian leader of the Communist Party during the Cold War, um, and he just his instincts were to go underground and like, um, and just like squandered whatever goodwill the Communist Party had. And they didn't they, they didn't fight their stuff on first First Amendment grounds. Um, and it, it was he was sort of a disaster as a leader of the party in the 1950s. But as a union organizer in the 19 teens, he was a genius. And when I read his stuff from that time period, it's clear that he is the first truly modern trade union organizer. He's the first person where I read. Oh, that's what I do. You know, because mm-hmm. like like like. Um, you know, the rebel girl, Flynn, and, and, and you know, uh, 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 Big Bill Haywood, 
um, they were they did a very different thing than 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 modern union organizers would recognize, right? Because part of it was creating a spectacle. It was like let's do these giant rallies. You know, most people didn't have radio. There was no TV. This was entertainment. So it was mm-hmm. like let's do these giant rallies. So like your ability to to rally workers, you know, in, in this public setting was huge. And the risk, of course, was that you could get your ass kicked that night. Like you could you could get mar you could get you know you could get strung up and hanged. Like the, right. the IWW martyr Frank Little was. That was the that was the risk and the reward of it, right? Um, what Foster did, which is what union organizers do to this day, is it's like we're going to small meetings of workers, you know, maybe a hundred people at a time, closed doors, you know, let's make a plan, and let's stick to the plan. And it was about organizing the workers around what's our plan, how do we win? And so it was very much like worker-to-worker conversation and, you know, how do we decide we're going to go on strike? What What is that meeting going to happen? Let's tell, like, make sure you tell your coworkers there's not going to be a strike unless we vote for it and that, stri- that conversation is not happening until X, Y, and Z date. But it was, but you got to sign this card now. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to wear this button, whatever the ask was. That's what right. trade union organizing is to this day. He was the first modern trade union organizer. And I, I was fascinated by the fact that the Staten Island Amazon workers were reading him. Uh, he, you know, it's it's it, it, it's over a hundred years old. It's it's mm-hmm. it's not easy reading. <laughs> you know, just the vernacular has changed. You know, writing styles have changed, um, but um, but the lessons are definitely there. Yeah. So uh, so moving back uh, from uh, from from nineteen nineteen to uh, you know. Slightly, not very much closer to the present, uh, talking about the Fodor book. Uh, it is worth maybe taking a minute just on uh, on like what this book is and uh, and how this uh, how this fits into uh, to Fodor's overall body of work. So he died in the mid nineties. He died in nineteen ninety four, and he he you know he was incredibly prolific. He is um, it should be noted the uncle of um, the far better known uh, uh, historian Eric Foner. Um, it, it, was, it was a bunch of red diaper baby uh, mm-hmm. uh, family, um, and um, and you know in, in the Cold War era, um, he wound up getting. I think uh, I think he was work. I think he was teaching at CUNY and wound up you know getting getting um, kicked out. Um, uh, a bad First Amendment case, um, and um, so this this project it's it's the history of the labor movement of the United States. Um, he started writing it in 1947. It's over 4,000 pages at this point. The first volume is like from, you know, from the day the first worker lands ashore um, yeah. in colonial times to the founding of the American Federation of Labor in, in 1881. Uh, and then subsequent volumes take, you know, smaller chunks of time, um, five years, 10 years, depending on, 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 on where it is. Um, and it's it's um it's 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 an interesting uh, 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 book in that it's um it's sort of an institutionalist history. So he's very focused as a researcher on mm-hmm. convention minutes, union journals, just the official publications, and just describing what this union was, what it professed to believe in, you know, what actions happened, these strikes, these organizing campaigns. Um, but it's also it's it's called the history of the labor movement. Um, he was responding to sort of what was then the the, the dominant 
school of, of labor history, the Wisconsin school of John R. Commons et al., um, which um, tried to have this sort of narrative of like labor, the labor movement as, as an evolutionary thing, where by the time they're writing it, which is the 1920s, the AFL had, had established the perfect form of unionism, which in retrospect is right. just laughable. I mean, it was, it was an absolute down, down. It was, it was, it was the nadir of official labor movement, uh, uh, just, just losing members left and right an open shop campaign and, and labor was just hugging tight to these sort of labor management partnerships that were going nowhere. Like these people were, were, were shooting us in the streets. Um, Whereas Foner wanted to emphasize the labor struggle part of it. Um, and, you know, he, he, so he, he, he wrote, he published 10 volumes in his lifetime. He takes the story up to 1929 and he died. And then, you know, I mean, we all assume sort of like, well, that was it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot for one man to write an entire history of the labor movement, you know, <laughs> year sure. by year. Um, but it turned out that he actually finished the 11th volume and it was sitting in a desk drawer at international publishers, which if you think about 19 international publishers is the, the, the it's owned and operated by the communist party of the United States of America, which if you think about 1994, they were busy, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, as, as the, uh, as the Soviet union came, came falling down, the communist party had a major split in its ranks. Um, and, and it took a long time for them to regroup. And so it was just sort of forgotten that this book existed. And, um, somebody found out about it, uh, an organizing director of the amalgamated, uh, transit union. And he was like, oh my God, you got to publish this. Like, what are you doing? It's, 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 it's Foner. It's volume 11 of Foner. You can't not publish this. Mm -hmm. And they did. And it's kind of amazing to hold this book in your hands that it's like, you know, um, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to stretch for a Star Wars analogy because sure, sure. so lucky that George Lucas isn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's just, it's bizarre and it's 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 good, um, and it's interesting to see where Foner focused. That you know, it's it's subtitled "The Great Depression," but it really only covers the years 1929 to 1932, um, which are a very distinct part of the Great Depression. It's the Hoover years, but also within labor, you know. Um, one of the things I, I say in the article is that, you know, um, we tend to smush that period, the Great mm. Depression and the New Deal, um, mm -hmm. and jumble up the timeline. And it, it tends to make leftists um, draw some really bad conclusions about what is to be done in the year 2022. You know, like one of the things that um, is, is almost a shibboleth uh, uh, on the left is that you don't get labor law reform without the crisis, without like the strike wave. It's bullshit. Uh -huh. <laughs> Actually, what happened is we got labor law reform first, and then the strike wave came, um, and 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 we got you know we got several we got three different four, at least labor law reforms, and they happened at different stages, starting in 1932, ending in 1938, um, and and you know the first one is under a Republican administration with a Republican Congress, um. And, and, and so it's 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 just it's worth studying, like the sort of the year by year, month by month history of the the 1929 through 1947 is important because um, there were revolutions happening every year. There are several several times a year. Um, and we're in that kind of period of unrest 
Um, and, and, and so, you know, I mean, there are these like decisions we got to make about, you know, the extent to which we push for legislative reform, like the pro act, which I don't think goes far enough, but still it's, it's, if, if, if the Democrats somehow, you know, win some ahistorical, (laughs) you know, mid midterm election win and, and they, and they get rid of the filibuster, it's on and it's actually worth leftists like fighting for the language, not just fighting for the act. Cause again, the pro act is kind of garbage. We need, we, there's better stuff we could be going for. And, 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 and you know, the, the labor laws of the 1930s, the ones that don't even exist anymore, like the, the national industrial recovery act are worth looking at because they're, they're sort of a roadmap. Um, and, and you know, and, and also, and I, I make this point in my first book. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, um, not good enough is good enough, you know. Like, well, well. Like, so that's the because because what you were saying that the the labor law reform came before the strike wave. Um, I I mean I might still be most slightly wrong about this, but I mean my understanding is that there was some kind of mild labor law reform that like then was enough to kind of give this big push. Um, you know that like, and the like better labor law reform came along later. So there's two things. Uh, so there's the Norris LaGuardia Act, which is covered in Foner's book and, and, and in my article. Uh, with the Norris LaGuardia Act is still on the books and is not appreciated enough as it's our most essential labor law. Because before that, strikes were essentially illegal. Um, employers would make workers sign a contract on the day they were hired that said, if I, fought, if I, I, I can't join a union, if I do, I, I, I give up my rights. Um, and, and then when unions went on strike, they take these, what were called yellow dog contracts and they go to, to, to the courts and they'd say, we need an injunction to stop this strike because they're interfering with our contract rights and with our property rights to expect our workers to come back to work tomorrow. And the injunction came with the national guard coming out with guns and shooting strikers unless they returned right. to work. It was a bad scene. Um, and so the, the Norris LaGuardia act passes largely because, Republicans were so disgusted by 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 the courts. Liberal Republicans, mm-hmm. these things existed at the time. Fiorello right. LaGuardia, the greatest mayor of New York City, was a congressman. Uh, George Norris was this sort of populist from the from I don't know Iowa or something. Mm-hmm. Sean, you still there? Norris LaGuardia, we would really. be in oh, fascist territory. But Roosevelt's first labor law was this National Industrial Recovery Act. It was it was not a labor law. It was a um it was um it, it was meant to stimulate the economy. It was meant to allow collusion between um oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Frankly speaking. Um uh, uh let them collude over prices, get antitrust laws out of the way. Because one of the big problems with, with, the, with the Depression was just it was a race to the bottom of, with prices, with wages, race to the bottom, race to the bottom. It's like, no, we have to establish floors. Mm-hmm. And the labor part of it was thrown in because the law itself was so controversial. Roosevelt just needed like one less critic. Uh-huh. And so they, they put in like, you know, this, the Section 7A, this right to organize. Workers have a right to organize unions. That was it. No enforcement mechanism, no definitions. Um, not worth the paper it was written on, but it was just enough to give workers enough hope to start organizing. And when their hopes were dashed because 
employers just, you know, they, they violated it. It, it, is, it is the thing that caused the 1934 strike wave. Every one of those strikes in 1934 was, was in response to the, the, the um, code-setting mechanism of the National Recovery Administration and workers being like, no, that's not enough. That's not what we asked for. You know, just the, like the, the, the code-setting, you know, hours that were still too long, 50-hour work weeks, 52-hour work weeks, wages that were way too low, you know, $7 a week or whatever, and, and, and workers being like, well, Fuck you! We're going on strike. Um, and, and it actually it actually served to organize the workers. Um, and 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 this is actually the coda of the the, the TUUL because these were these industry wide codes. Um, it kind of forced the the radical independent unions to do sort of united front work with the AFL unions because I'll, I'll speak of what I'm researching: the hotel yeah. labor codes. You know, uh, uh, the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union, which was a shadow of its former self at that point. It used to be a bartender's union, but we were still in prohibition, so they had no <laughs> members. Um, and then there was the TUUL, and then there was like this other union that was sort of like vaguely Trotskyite, social democratic. Mm-hmm. All three of them represented workers. All three of them got, to, got a seat at the table to, to negotiate these codes. They were not happy with the results of it. And because the, 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 the NRA did not have an enforcement mechanism, um, right. the employers were, were, had a strategy of just like company unions, company unions, company unions. Um, and so in, in January of 1934, I think this is the first of the strikes of the 1934 strike wave, yeah. Oscar Churchke at the Waldorf Astoria, the famed Oscar of the Waldorf, holds a captive audience meeting. He's like, you guys have to join the Geneva Society. Anybody who still has an amalgamated food workers card on Monday uh-huh. is fired. Fires the shop steward, and and the amalgamated food workers walk out. And then the 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 the, the food workers industrial union, the, the 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 communist union, starts trying to one up them, and it becomes this citywide strike in New York, um, which becomes impossible to settle because no one union is willing to like every every union is like no, we could get a better deal. We could get a better deal. Uh, it's a failure of a strike. Um, but A, it's the start of the strike wave of 1934, and B, it's the thing that taught the, the hotel industry itself in New York City that there was no road to recovery without labor peace, but also the new mayor of New York City, the congressman who wrote the Norris LaGuardia Act, Fiorello LaGuardia, was like, I'm not letting you do that ever again. This is going to be a 100% union city. And he forced the hotel industry to sign essentially a neutrality agreement in 1937. Right. Um, fascinating stuff. No, absolutely. Uh, so, so before I, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of places we could take this and I hope we'll, uh, continue this conversation very soon. But what, uh, be, before I let you go, I, I do want to move from the history to, uh, to the, the present and follow up on something. The thing that you said kind of in passing that I think would probably surprise the most listeners, which is, um, the, uh, the, uh, the pro act is garbage. You want to, uh, you want to give us that case for a minute? Um, it, it, I, I think the framework of the NLRB is, is broken. Um, you know, it, 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 was, it was written at a time when you had these massive corporations like GM and United States Steel. Um, and, and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's almost a voluntarist approach, you know, oh. it's, so it's, it's, and, and, and it's employer based. Whether you have a union is based upon whether workers 
for a union sometime in the past, and somehow you've mm-hmm. held on to it. Um, and employers have spent the last 50 years breaking that model. It's the reason that we have rampant subcontracting. It's the reason that we have rampant offshoring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason that you have, you know, even in these, in, the, in these Amazon warehouses, you have people working side by side with technically different employers. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the, the employer-based model is what's broken. Um, the product is fine. It just won't solve our problems. And what we actually need to do is we need to get back to something that looks more like that National Industrial Recovery Act that has real teeth for, for um, the right to organize. We need, we need codes. We need, we need, um, we need, we need, uh, I hesitate to say this because everything, everything is a loaded term at this point. Um, even the, 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 term, the term sectoral bargaining is so controversial within, within labor circles because it's getting, it's getting perverted into things that it doesn't mean because you've got Uber you, you, you've got Uber being doing this cute thing where they go to state legislatures and they come with it. Oh, here's here's our new sectoral bargaining framework, and it's like union light. Um, but it's like, oh, but this will apply to you know to this entire industry. It's sectoral. It's like, no, we need sectoral bargaining, um, where you know you, you just you just take the working rules and 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 the wages out of competition, where you set telecom, however you define the industry, telecom. These are going to be the rules for telecom, you know, right. and, and regardless of whether there's a union, uh, an NLRB certified union at your workplace, this is the minimum wage in telecom. It's 50 bucks an hour. You know, this is this is this is the maximum number of hours in telecom. It's 38, you know, it's 35, whatever it is. Um, that's what we need to get back to. Um, and I, I and, and, and this is uh, we don't have enough time to get into this uh, here. Um I think that, 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 that one of the things that labor has to struggle with here and, and, and is why we need to be actually grappling with labor law even before we've started the strike wave. Um, yeah. I think too many union leaders are and, – and not just leaders, even, even, even the labor notes folks are too married to mm-hmm. collective bargaining where you have control mm-hmm. over it, where an elected representative get, you know, gets to bargain. We have these rights because we are the bargaining agent I don't think you can get to sectoral bargaining with that framework and survive First Amendment challenges. Um, I think what you need is something much closer to what the, 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 the first New Deal did, which is these are codes. You know, anybody who has a legitimate claim to represent workers in this industry gets a seat at the table and the codes then just apply and you, you, you don't have the union shop. You don't have guaranteed dues income. You got to organize for that. But you know what? If, if you're out there uh, and you can make a credible claim to workers that if you sign this card, if you wear this button, if you click on this action, if you do whatever, we're working to get you a raise. I think most workers are going to join. But that, that framework of the union shop and, and, and agency fee dues and the control of collective bargaining as, as a, you know, mandatory subjects of bargaining – People are a little too married to it. I'm not saying scrap it. I think, I think the yeah. Pro Act should get passed, and that should exist on a shop-by-shop basis, but we need something that transcends shops. We need something that, that just lights every workplace on fire across the country. Well, that sounds like a discussion in itself. Uh, I hope I can get you back in maybe a couple of weeks to, to, to like flesh out a little bit more what that might look like. But uh, 
But Sean, thank you so much. Uh, people can find this article at uh, at Jacobin. Is there anything else you want to plug before we go? Buy my book. <laughs> All, <the laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> buy uh, buy Sean's book. Uh, tell the uh, tell the bosses that we're coming. I will throw in a link to that to uh, the description to this episode. Uh, it is always really good talking to you, my friend. We'll talk very soon. All right. Take care, comrade.